1: Miss the show? No worries, we've got you covered on point. And on the podcast, we check in with one of Canada's most successful club and hotel owners to see how he is faring, given there's no real clear path to when he can open up again. Trudeau government tells Serb cheaters, "Don't worry about paying back billions you never qualified for." And Trump's impeachment trial gets underway. How long will this political theater last, and what will it actually accomplish? Let's get talking.
0: Your point. You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you answer the point? Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough.
2: Here's Alex Pearson
3: on Global News Radio. I'm
0: listening. The level of transparency and confidence uh, a government can give Canadians in uh, constantly improving constantly doing better and sharing uh, what we need to do to improve uh, is something that we've always been committed to. Uh, I look forward to continuing to work with all parties and uh, members of of, uh, the public service on strengthening measures to make sure that this government is always uh, open about what's going wrong and how we can fix it.
1: Oh boy, when it comes to transparency, Trudeau has become the very thing he said he hated and would stop. Hope you are uh, having a good day. Certainly has been a very busy day of news. And uh, a cold day, boy, has ever gotten cold out. But accountability is um, a big theme today. Certainly late this afternoon, as you've been hearing, uh, Marco Muzzo will not be held accountable. Because our justice system is no longer about accountability. This story is just, I think, everything wrong with where we're at. I mean, that someone can kill an entire family and be free in under five years isn't just insulting. It is a, it's cruel. It is not a deterrent. And I know defense lawyers will disagree with me, but it does nothing to serve as a punishment for uh, the most grievous of crimes. And I have covered countless drunk driving cases in my career. And sadly, they just all end in short sentences, that leave the families behind completely ripped apart. And it just seems that it's gotten worse over the last few years, because our system's just about restorative justice, you know, making sure that the offender has a second chance, you know, rather than actually paying for a crime. Because don't forget, in the Mutso case, he pleaded guilty in 2016, got a 10-year sentence, and um, barely, barely served four years. And Where he served at Beaver Creek is barely a jail. I've been there. And it's more like being at a dorm for uh, college guys. This story, this tragedy, this headline is wrong in every conceivable way. And um, we're just not serious about stopping this kind of carnage on our road. And that's why it continually happens. So we will talk about it because Karen Lieberman has been reporting on this story for the last couple of years, and she's got the details of what happened in that parole hearing. But let's talk about uh, accountability when it comes to government. And if you uh, if you wonder why growing numbers of, of Canadians don't buy what they're being told about COVID, then you need not look any further than those who deliver the message. And you may recall back in the day that when Justin Trudeau was campaigning in 2015, one of his main promises was that his government would be transparent. Unlike Harper, who was accused of having a secret agenda. And then day after day, we keep getting examples that, you know, it is in fact the Trudeau government that wants to keep things secret, especially when it comes to their mishandling of COVID. And I think a big problem is that we don't have a functioning parliament, which should outrage folks. I mean, the Prime Minister barely leaves his cottage, which should not be acceptable. Other world leaders go to work, they function, they, you know, have an active parliament. So it's pretty much impossible to get a proper scrutiny and accountability, which is how I think Trudeau's managed to get away with most of his government's glaring mistakes. But Global News got its hands on some internal emails, and um, we learn a whole bunch of stuff You know, about what the prime minister's office has been doing and what it has been doing is it's damned us to make sure that we don't find about, you know, their mistakes. Whether it is the billions in spending that to this date does not add up uh, on vaccines or its COVID response. And you go through the emails and it reveals that back in the spring, there were senior political staffers in Trudeau's office where they privately discussed how to withhold information from Canadians in the spring so that they could avoid, you know, scrutiny. And the emails reveal that Trudeau, the government purposely withheld specifics like dollar amounts or delivery dates in his daily cottage pressers by carefully crafting his speeches so that they couldn't then be fact-checked and held to account. So they'd use things like generic terminology in their wording. In these big announcements for what, it, whether it's protective equipment like the $4 billion Trudeau announced back in the spring that was supposed to go to things like PPE and ICU equipment, he would just kind of stick to the feel-good talking points, you know, like the, we've got your back. And that was so he could purposely avoid telling us that there were delays with PPE deliveries because we couldn't get it. And then his staff would wait for a PPE delivery, even if it was just a small one to arrive, just so they could make it look like we were getting steady deliveries of this emergency equipment, when the real story was that they were scrambling to find it. And in one email to the procurement minister, there was a staffer who wrote, quote, it's just crazy enough that it might just work. And you'll recall back in the spring, PPE was running short. We had frontline workers wearing masks that were so soiled they wore them for weeks. And what these emails reveal is the Trudeau government, you know, would make it look like they were getting steady supplies of these life-saving supplies. And because they were able to do that, they felt that they were being mostly honest. Which is not true. It's a lie. That is spin. That is smoke and mirrors. And what we also learn from the emails is that this was a government in complete panic. You know, they were making things up on the fly because Blacklock reporting also got emails that further reveal what was going on at public health. And, of course, remember, there was an audit done into Canada's health agency and they didn't have one health expert working there. It was just a bunch of suits. And it was being so mismanaged that it rejected an offer of masks from a North American manufacturing company called Honeywell, which is a pretty well-known name eight days into the pandemic. And at that time, President Trump, you might recall, was trying to stop PPE shipments coming from um, 3M to Canada. And so this company offered the Trudeau government a devoted production line at a Mexican factory that would give Canada a steady supply of N95 masks. And yet, despite cries and panic and fear from frontline workers and panic setting in all over the country this inept staff at Canada's Public Health said, yeah, no thanks, it's not a priority. <sighs> really? It goes a long way in explaining why Dr. Talk, you know, Dr. Tam's talking points for months was masks don't work. And then, of course, in May, when we started getting PPE, that all changed. But the public health unit was completely clueless and obviously Useless. And the emails that have been, you know, found in this um, information request reveal even Trudeau and the prime minister's office were shocked by this decision and questioning why they would make such a decision. Only to realize two weeks later that the same public health unit that said no to Honeywell would order up 135 million masks from, wait for it, China, which, of course, sent us a bunch of flawed masks or no masks at all. And because we rejected the offer from Honeywell, which was a deal that had no strings attached, in other words, we didn't have to pay them subsidies, the Trudeau government had little choice then but to give 3M $23 million so that they could retrofit a factory in Brockville and we could get masks to protect frontline workers. You know, we are upside down and backwards a year into this crisis. And I think what is becoming very clear is that there has been such an utter lack of failed leadership from the beginning of this crisis that we were always told yeah we're prepared for it and we were so not prepared for it and then you read about you know you know we talk about every day that we don't have vaccines well that's because trudeau was not interested in producing them cuz la presse puts out a report today that 5 years for 5 years pharma companies were blown off by The Trudeau government, the CEO of Merck, says that he called Trudeau himself and Minister Navdeep Bains, who, of course, is now spending time with his children, and he had been trying to get meetings to discuss with uh, the government the goals that they had when it came to pharma research and innovation, and the CEO was met with radio silence. He was completely blown off, not just by the prime minister, but by the minister which now explains why we are, you know, back of the line for deliveries when it comes to getting the big portfolio Trudeau likes to brag about. And what it tells us is that, you know, Trudeau made the calculation. He made a calculation not to cozy up to Big Pharma. And now we know why Big Pharma is giving Canada the cold shoulder. So this is one of those days where we find out a whole lot of information from Emails that really aren't for, for the public, but have been made public because Global and Black reporting Supporting made a point of asking for them and getting them. And that is why we're finding this out. Not because we have a functioning parliament where there's scrutiny and accountability, but because of digging for this kind of information. And I'd like to think, you know, that we should be surprised by this. But a year in, given how much of a disaster that this thing has been, nothing surprises me anymore. I'm Alex Pearson. Stay with us here on Global News Radio.
4: The declaration of emergency will not be extended past February 9th. We're maintaining shutdown measures in the majority of the public health regions in Ontario for a short time. But we will look to gradually and safely transition all regions to a revised and stronger COVID-19 response framework. Well, that was
1: the premier announcing Monday the reopening of Ontario's economy. But um, if you own a business like a salon, a gym, restaurant, nightclub in the GTA or Toronto, you aren't reopening on February 22nd. Maybe not at all. And the question of when they can open is still up in the air. And there are severe limits of how many people can come into a business once they do get clearance to open. And you've got to remember, these businesses have been shut down for over 240 days. And imagine if you own a business that only succeeds by the numbers you can bring in, like a nightclub or a restaurant. What does Monday's announcement offer them? other than very, very little hope. Let's touch base with someone we've had on the show several times as we go through this uh, crisis, Charles Kaputh, joining me, CEO of Inc. Entertainment. And, of course, I'll remind our listeners that Charles owns probably the most nightclubs and restaurants as well as hotels in this country. Good to have you back, Charles.
4: Nice to have me back there. Thank you.
1: It's hard to believe. A year later, we are still at a point where a, a guy like you can't open, um, you know, restaurants and, and bars that are, are known around the world. Um, I knew you were hurting back then. What's the situation for you now?
4: I mean, it's definitely devastating to the whole industry. And and uh, um, thank God we're you know we've been around thirty seven years. So as a company, we're financially sound, and we're we've learned how to pivot and and hang on to what we have, but. The bigger problem we have is is the mental health issue that we're seeing around staff, around Mm -hmm. clients, friends, and family uh, uh, that is really devastating. And and the financial damage, um, even when we reopen, uh, Mm -hmm. we're going to have to carry a burden for a long time. So just because people are staying in business and reopening, we're all going to be carrying a heavy load of debt, and, and the expenses that have been incurred um, for for a long time, which is really sad.
1: Not to mention the instability. It's hard to imagine in a city like Toronto what the nightlife might look like when this thing is over. What will it look like?
4: Uh, that is the question. I'm not sure uh, how long it will take to get everything back up and running again and, and people confidence in going out uh, again as well, Uh, we're going to need a lot of help from the city, from the government, from the prime minister as a whole, as a country, to encourage, uh, you know, going out, to encourage, uh, you know, doing things, of course, safely and and properly. But so far, the only thing we hear is negative and, and promises that really are not, being delivered on you know the promise of a vaccine that has never arrived uh you know the promise of reopening any sometime soon that is not happening uh i'm really not seeing anything down the pipeline that is promising and even the promises are not coming through so we uh, myself and everyone in the industry has lost faith in in the you know the strength of of the city and the government to maneuver through this pandemic.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, you own the kind of place, uh, lounges uh, where everyone wants to go, where there's constantly a line up down the street. Um, you know, where you can get hundreds of people in one establishment, and and that to me right now seems so far off. Um, Because the vaccine, as you well know, is months, if not, you know, by mid 2022, some are now saying and and until we get that vaccine, we are stuck with, you know, this this virus that, you know, you can't have big crowds. And so I think, uh, you know, how on earth are you supposed to make any money on a nightclub or a a restaurant or one of your lounges if you can't put more than 25 percent capacity in?
4: No, it's definitely, again, I'll repeat, it's devastating uh, not having the vaccine. I think for me right now, it's my one and only focus is getting somehow uh, this vaccine into this country. Because it's not just me. Uh, look at mm-hmm. you know, uh, concerts, events, uh, yeah. symphony. Uh, you know, it's, it's not just nightclubs, but... Uh, uh, almost everything we do socially uh, encourages people to be in groups you know socially there's if you went into a restaurant that only had uh six people, you end up leaving so people look for that human touch and feel and 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 the you know the the group of of you know concerts that come through the city and and plays and just imagine it's thousands and thousands of jobs that have been lost. And unfortunately and sadly, a lot of people have moved on from the hospitality industry. They've either mm-hmm. left the city, left the country, uh, changed uh, careers totally. I know we have a slew of people that have changed careers uh, completely because they can no longer wait uh, and and hope that we are going to reopen soon. So it, it is a long-term uh, damage that has been done. And the truth is we don't, Um, have a lot of visibility on when this vaccine is coming to town, to the city, to the country, and um, it has not been dealt with properly. Sadly, I want to say that we are all of the same opinion that from the top down, this has not been dealt with properly, and we now are at risk of losing everything. Well, we
1: have pandemics within pandemics. We've got the virus pandemic, and then we've got the mental health pandemic, and then we've got the economic pandemic. And so there's a number of viruses hitting all at the same time, but the only one we seem to focus on is COVID. And you mentioned the mental health issues that you're seeing within your staff. I have to think that you've probably had to let go of most of your staff, who probably all thought they'll be coming back only to find out that they can't.
4: Um, You know, we still have over 2,000 employees that have been let go. We have a handful, maybe 150 people, that are operating some takeout uh, here -hmm. and there. And it's, uh, you know, it's quiet. It's not what people think. Uh, But uh, mental health is a bigger issue for for all of us now. I see it with family members, with staff, uh, people Mm -hmm. we deal with, um, and, you know, close friend of mine who's a doctor at SickKids will tell you that uh, the amount of kids that have been physically abused have quadrupled in the last six months. It's beyond control. And it's definitely not people that are abusive normally, but people are starting to lose uh, control. And a lot of kids with permanent brain damage, uh, bleeding behind the eyes, broken bones. Mm. This is word for word that was told to me a few days ago, and uh, you know, I, I see it every day, and it's. Uh, I'm not sure why the city it does not have on the panel, uh, you know, therapists or, or uh, mental, uh, you know, uh, doctors, or it's strictly, you know, the, the physical uh, harm that's being done, and and uh, we need more than that, and we need straight answers, and we need. Promises that get delivered on. That's uh, that's where we are today.
1: Yeah, we need. I, I think businesses like yourselves need some clarity so that they can at least plan and maybe make plans uh, moving forward as to whether you even continue. But um, you know, the, the financial aid was uh, you know rolling in the spring, um, but the financial aid now is where I think businesses like yourselves is needed because you're shut down through no fault of your own. It's not like you ran a crappy business and you're out of business. You have been forced to shut by public health officers. Um, but there's not a lot of aid that is now coming your way to make the business whole. You're just kind of expected to, to hang on.
4: No, I mean, all the financial aid has diminished uh, very quickly. We used to get paid as much as 75% of salaries. It's down in, at, at times down to 30%. It's completely changed and uh, rent subsidy is uh, you know, regulated and up to a certain amount. So a big company like mine is limited to a certain amount every month. So mm-hmm. what people see on the outside or here is not really what it is. Once you apply and, and you start looking and digging deeper, it's not what people think it is. And uh, uh, we could use all the help we can now, uh, but sadly, even with all the financial help now, it's going to come back to bite us because, um, you know, we're going to have to pay it back in some form of taxes and more taxes. And um, I think the focus should be now on getting the vaccine and really reopening the city properly. And listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a mature man. I have a nine-year-old mother I take care of. So I do understand. Uh, but uh, we do need to reopen the city sooner than later, do it properly, do it with you know uh with all the regulations that we were happy to deal with uh, a few months ago when we were allowed to open people were happy people were smiling staff customers uh and and even though we were not making a lot of money because of limitations we were at least mentally in a good frame of mind and and uh really just felt much better right now this lockdown mm-hmm. has to end sooner then later. It really has to end as soon as possible.
1: Just before I let you go, Charles, because you have been, you know, um, from the start, uh, very supportive of the measures. You've tried to play by the rules. You and other businesses have kind of, you know, you, you've gone along for the ride and done what all the people in charge asked you to do. Um, do you feel that they're picking winners and losers here at this point a year in?
4: I mean, definitely, uh... <laughs> They are picking winners and losers. And even with our hotel now, uh, I mean, I'm 100% against locking up people for three days in hotels. But they're giving all the opportunity for the hotels by the airport, whereas it should be opened up uh, to hotels downtown as well. The difference is really five, six-minute ride by taxi or Uber. Uh, But also, you know, opening the big stores, not the small stores, is backward. To me and the whole city in the world, it's a backward uh, concept. It's the smaller stores that should be open where you can control your crowd. Once you open a a, a big store, a big space, it's very tough to, to, uh, you know, control a crowd. And by the way, no one's paying attention anymore. I mean, we used to line up to go into drugstore, and we used to line up to go into Loblaws. There's no lineups anymore. and People were there sanitizing all day and all night. You'd see everything. It's not happening anymore. I think people are past that point, unfortunately, and they, most people don't care anymore.
1: I think a lot of people have lost hope and lost trust. Well, I certainly uh, will continue chatting with you, Charles, and I always appreciate your time, and I do hope for better times and that uh, people start worrying about the collateral damage of the virus that um, it's causing to the economy. Charles, I appreciate your time on this.
4: Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: That is Charles Cabooth, who, again, one of the biggest uh, club owners, restaurant owners in the city of Toronto, also in Miami, and, again, He's uh, hanging on, but the the fight is uh, diminishing for a lot of these businesses. Stay with us here on Point. This is Alex Pearson on Global News Radio.
0: For people who accessed CERB based on their gross income instead of their net income, as long as you meet the other eligibility criteria, you will not have to return those CERB payments. When we rolled out CERB last March, it was because people needed help in the face of a global, once-in-a-generation crisis. Well, the pandemic isn't yet over, so neither is our support.
1: There you go, the Prime Minister. Partey! Certainly good news if you were uh, one of those who cheated the Trudeau government's SERB payment. You don't have to pay it back. And um, a lot of people see this program as a success story for the Trudeau government, but now we're starting to see a lot of very, very costly mistakes have been made because this was a program that was supposed to cost, what, $24 billion? And then the uh, cost of the aid program went up over $80 billion, and that's because the Trudeau government made mistakes in explaining who exactly qualifies. And they said that anyone making 5000 gross instead of net can get the money. And while it was absolutely, without question, urgent to get the program running and get money out to the people who needed it, this error has led to a lot of widespread cheating. Certainly, not everyone who took CERB is a cheater. That's not at all what I'm suggesting. There are a lot of people who took it, who needed it, who deserved it, who took it honestly. But we know from reports on this that there were a whole bunch of people. There were high school students getting these payments. There were families earning over $100,000 getting these checks. And the CRA now believes as many as 441,000 Canadians got thousands of dollars that they shouldn't have gotten. And the CRA was going to try to claw it back. And the Trudeau government now says, "Eh, keep it. It's crazy. Aaron Woodrick, executive director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, joins me. Your head must have exploded when you heard this one.
3: Yeah, I mean, it just, it just goes to show you, Alex, why we don't develop these kinds of multi-billion dollar programs, usually in the span of a couple of weeks, because this is exactly what happens. A long story short is the government screwed up and you and I and everybody else are going to have to pay for it. And, you know, you talked earlier about the people who are cheating the system. Look, if someone deliberately lied and claimed money they were not entitled to, I say throw the book at them. They need to pay it back. If you were someone who uh, genuinely thought you were eligible, you called the government up and they said, yep, you qualify. And then later on you find out you don't. Well, I've got more sympathy for you because it was the government's fault. But the problem is, Alex, when the government screws up, it's you and me and everybody else that ends up paying the bill for it.
1: Well, certainly. I mean, this was a $64 billion overrun on a program that has given this government a, a whole lot of, um, you know. A pluses. And uh, you think about that money and who it could have gone to, the businesses it could have helped that are now completely crushed because uh, they didn't qualify for any programs. It just it's infuriating. But certainly there would have to be a mechanism in place that the CRA could claw back from those like high school students, 15 year olds who in no way should be getting that money or those, you know, the family is making over a 100 grand or those. There are ways we can get money back from cheaters. And there certainly can be cases made for people who thought they qualified honestly and didn't. And I don't understand, um, unless other than for, um, you know, partisan, you know, vote, you know, seeking reasons why the Trudeau government would not try to recoup some of that money.
3: Yeah, you're right. Look, anyone who who actively tried to defraud the system, I think most Canadians expect that they should be punished like any other person who defrauds the system any other time. If anything, it's even worse to do this, you know, during a pandemic. The other issue, though, is, I mean, the program design, it was a very blunt instrument, no getting around that. But one thing we started calling for even back in the summer, Alex, was to start tightening it up. I mean, I understand, like you said, they had to get it out the door in a hurry back in March. And I'm willing to cut them some slack for the first few months. But there's no reason why, for example, later on, if you pick $5,000 as a cutoff, if someone was receiving $5,000 last year, why are they getting 17000 or 19000 this year? It doesn't make any sense. And the, the example that you cite, you know, there are some people in high school age who are working full-time jobs. I don't want to besmirch those hardworking people, but there are others. It's, it's a part-time gig. They're living at home. They don't have to live off this money. And now they've got this windfall of 15000 $18,000. I think most Canadians are asking, what does that have to do with pandemic relief and helping people who really need it during a tough time?
1: Especially when there are no aid packages rolling out right now for businesses that continue to be shut down um, much longer than expected. And then, you know, you read on even those who meet the criteria and who voluntarily repay the money are going to get the money sent back.
3: Yeah, that one makes no sense at all. I mean, uh, kudos to those people for for since doing that. by right the way, since
1: when is a tax man that? that generous? <laughs> they,
3: yeah. Like, yeah. well, know. that's it and it's easy to be generous with other people's money, right? And that that fundamentally is the problem um, you know with these programs is the trudeau government loves to reap all the political benefits, but there is a really big tab being run right here. And, boy, eventually that is going to have to be paid. And I really don't know if a lot of people have wrapped their heads around the size and scope of this and what it's going to mean for a lot of us, because I can tell you, it's not going to be a couple of billionaires that rock up and decide that they're going to pay uh, for everything that we borrowed during this time.
1: Yeah, no, but this this speaks to, to the dangers, I think, where we find that, yes, money had to be rushed out, but there's so little scrutiny. We have a barely functioning parliament right now. Um, and and there is a lot to scrutinize. I mean, we are billions and billions and billions in the hole, and and again, you know, no one would begrudge helping people out, but there's so much we could do with the money that was taken by people who shouldn't have got it, and um, we're watching their destruction right now and shrugging our shoulders.
3: Yeah, and, you know, we're going to have a budget sometime perhaps in the next six weeks. It's going to be the first budget in two years. You know, there was no (sighs) reason they could not have had a budget. Last fall, Both, every other G7 country did it, and again, like you said, no one's saying the government couldn't have taken quick action. But boy, they certainly could have allowed a couple of days debate in parliament over these things. So we could have some accountability, we could have some transparency, and we could help avoid some of the pitfalls that have that have occurred that that have cost us billions of dollars. I mean, parliament could have improved some of these programs. The Trudeau government didn't give them the chance to.
1: And then the political side of this thing, to argue against this, even to suggest to try getting the money back, um, gets spun into, oh, you want to hurt people who are in need. And so it's a very hard political argument to make. I mean, we justifiably should be going after cheaters. That's not that, you know, that's a lot different than going after people who needed money.
3: Well, 100 percent. I think that there there is no Canadian that begrudges someone who desperately needed a little help to pay their rent buy their groceries, no one is saying that was a problem. They are saying if you scam the system, if you cheated Canadian taxpayers uh, out of thousands of dollars at this this time, you definitely deserve the book to have thrown at you.
1: No kidding. Boy, oh boy. When a true audit is done, and I would think the Parliamentary Budget Officer, would he not have something to say about this?
3: Yeah, it'll probably be the Auditor General that will have to look into a lot of the spending. And in fact, the opposition parties have directed the Auditor General to do that. So it's going to take some time. Um, And Mm. it's probably not going to be very pretty. And like I said, it'll take a while, but it'll eventually come out and see the light of day.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, the election will be behind us by the time uh, the true kind of numbers are seen. But uh, boy, oh boy, this is just, uh, it's just not acceptable. But am I surprised? Nope, I am not. Aaron, um, we'll see. You're going to need a much bigger debt clock, by the way.
3: (laughs) We're working on it.
1: Yeah, I bet. Keep building. All right, Aaron, appreciate your time on this. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Alex. That is Aaron Woodrick, the executive director of... Uh, oh, do I still have you on the line, Aaron? You still there? You do. Oh, I do, I do. You know what? I, I just forgot. I forgot, I forgot, I forgot. You guys are also, and I wanted to mention this, you've got a petition going because you also try and stop payments for the governor general. Where, what is that? And and, um, and what are you asking?
3: Yeah, so we've got a petition up at taxpayer.com. We've already got 100,000 signatures from Canadians on it, so it's a pretty wow. hot petition. And we are looking to get the Trudeau government to cut off the expense account that uh, retired governors generals get. They get $200,000 per year, Alex, for office expenses for life. This is for each governor general. Yeah. In fact, they actually get it six months past their death, their, their, their estate yeah. can claim. It's outrageous. So we're inviting people to sign that petition at taxpayer.com.
1: Another one that I well, mean, at least let's let's try to recoup the cost from one or the other. I mean, if we can't do both, but nonetheless. All right. Where do you find the petition?
3: At taxpayer.com.
1: There you go. All right. Aaron Woodrick, appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, Alex. Aaron's with the uh, Canadian Taxpayer Federation. stay with us here, Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.
2: The Senate has a solemn responsibility to try and hold Donald Trump accountable for the most serious charges ever, ever levied against a president.
1: All righty, that is uh, House Leader Chuck Schumer, who is a uh, champion at the bit to get into this second impeachment trial of former U.S. President Donald Trump, which got underway today. And of course, um, he was impeached by the House of Representatives four weeks ago for the incitement of insurrection in connection with that January 6th attack of the U.S. Capitol where five people died. And while this, I think, you know, is mainly being driven by the Democrats who just can't quit Trump, there are Republicans who also voted for this hearing. And the drive is to make sure Trump can never run for president again. And the Democrats say they have more than enough evidence to convict They need two-thirds of the 100-seat Senate to vote with them, and right now they don't have the numbers of Republicans to join them. So right now it kind of looks like, um, you know, political theater. But where will it take us? Let us bring in someone who is probably following every word of it, Michael Tobe, who writes for Looney Politics, Troy Media, Uh, also a former speechwriter to Stephen Harper. And how do you characterize what is going on?
2: Oh, hey, Alex. Yeah, I mean, it's a show trial. I mean, it's basically very similar to what people saw with Donald Trump's first impeachment trial, as we may remember, the whole Russia affair that really turned out to be nothing. And in the end, he was impeached by the House of Representatives, but acquitted by the Senate, which is probably the same thing that's going to happen here and probably almost by the same number. But again, I mean, obviously for the U.S. media, it's theater they love this mm-hmm. i mean especially cnn who detest the former president this is exactly what they want they have wall to wall coverage not only in terms of being on the tv but online they have tons and tons of articles and they keep leaving it open is the possibility oh yes i mean if 17 republicans move over with the democrats then yes, he'll be impeached. Oh, it could even possibly happen on President's Day, as one, as one person was suggesting on CNN. It's nice to say this. it's fun to say it, and obviously the media is getting a kick out of it, but the reality is there is absolutely no way they're ultimately going to get 17 Republicans to side with the Democrats during the show trial.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, networks like CNN, mm-hmm. the worst thing for them was when Donald Trump lost because what else are they going to I mean, they, it would force them to have to talk about something else. So they will right. love this and they will cover it and they will carry it. But again, the end game for both sides, both the Democrats and the Republicans, I mean, it is going to, I think, be very damaging to the Republicans because they need to mm-hmm. shake this off and, and, and rebuild. But it also doesn't look good on the Democrats because no. um, the bottom line is that country is very, very divided. And this just, I think, further divides Divides Americans, um, And and really, if the Democrats have all this work to do, like they say with this pandemic, let, just get back to work. Let's put the, the Trump chapter behind us and, and get on with your work. But they don't want to.
2: Well, yes, I mean, I think in private, a lot of them do, especially I would imagine in the White House, President Joe Biden would rather that people were concentrating on, you know, his policies, his ideas, his plan for the country and not focusing so much on the former president, Donald Trump. But you're right. I mean, obviously, Trump is the most interesting thing that U.S. media has currently, because, quite frankly, Biden and the Biden administration, yes, they're obviously spending an enormous amount of money. You know, we're talking about $1.9, million, $1.9 trillion Pardon me, to get things under control, and that's only one stage of it, dealing with all the you know, various losses and job losses, individual problems with COVID-19. But then you also go into the issue that Joe Biden basically is just a straightforward, normal politician, one that we've typically seen in the United States many years, one that we're quite used to in countries like Canada. Trump is different. Trump is unique. He's an, you know, he's an enigma upon himself. And he just is a kind of a fascinating character, whether you love him or hate him. that yes, the cameras will idolize him and stay focused on him the whole time. Plus, yeah. no U.S. president has ever been face impeachment trials twice. He's the first president to do so. Only a few presidents, Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton before him, have ever faced an impeachment proceeding. So Trump is actually only the third president. And this is actually the fourth trial we've dealt with in the United States. So you're right. right. I mean, it's all kind of interesting. But in the same sense, we have to be fair about it. The Democrats are obviously going to push in one direction publicly, and they're going to state that this is the most important trial, that this proves that, you know, impeachment proceedings have to be held, that if this president, is fa- former president is found acquitted, you know, it's a complete travesty of justice. But behind the scenes, they know exactly what's going to happen, Alex.
1: All right. And so how does this play out? I mean, when it sure. came to Bill Clinton, his impeachment, it lasted like it felt like two years. I mean, it was months and months of television. How long is yeah. this going to last And what are we going to see? Are we going to see Trump uh,
2: testifying? Yeah, no, Trump will not testify. His lawyers came out immediately and said he will not. So they could obviously subpoena him if they wanted to. They could try that later on, but it seems unlikely. But basically what we're going to see for the next little while is most likely a second impeachment trial of Donald Trump that's going to go even quicker than the first one did. So basically, long story short, you know, the trial started today. So obviously there were several hours of debate that occurred. And then what happens is there's 16 hours sort of allotted in up to four eight-hour days of arguments. 16 hours is set for the prosecution, which would be the Democrats. 16 hours would be set for the defense, would obviously be the Republicans or Trump's legal team. And they will go back and forth on discussions. There could be a little bit of a break at one point, And if there is or isn't, there will then be a four-hour period of Q&As which means that senators, both Democrats and Republicans, can ask questions of the opposing legal teams, just matters of relevance or things that they want to discuss. Then you go through a various series of uh, different presiding officer would be in place, which is actually going to be, in this case, uh, Senator Patrick Leahy. uh, Chief Justice John Roberts of the Supreme Court opted not to be involved with this, so it's going to be directly in the Senate. Then there will be some discussion on whether further witnesses should be brought in, Or, as I mentioned before, whether you have to subpoena someone like Donald Trump, the former president, to come and speak. But if all that is removed, you go straight into closing arguments. And it could be up to four hours. It could be less than four hours. It could go even above that. So when all comes to push to shove, I think that the U.S. Senate is hoping, Alex, to finish this all up in a week's time, give or take, which would make it the fastest impeachment trial of a president in U.S. history by far. And again, as I said before, the only way that Donald Trump can be found guilty or guilty of the impeachment that the House of Representatives gave to him earlier is that two thirds of the U.S. Senate, which comes to 67 senators overall out of the 100 that are sitting, must side with the fact that Donald Trump is guilty. So that would be all 50 Democratic senators, plus an additional 17 Republican senators. The chances of this happening are next to nil, especially if you look back at the most recent vote that the Senate had, which was discussing whether this trial should even be held in the first place, only five Republicans sided with the Democrats that the trial should go through. That leaves Mm -hmm. a gap of 12 right away, and if that holds, guess what? Donald Trump is not going to be found guilty. And then he would not face a subsequent vote, which would be a question of whether he should be barred from office or not. Although that basically just needs a very simple 50 percent margin plus one. The reason it doesn't happen is if Donald Trump is acquitted, which he most likely will be, they don't ask that second question. And that's it. That's the end.
1: Yeah, it won't be the end, though, because once this is all decided, Trump will reemerge. And Well, no, no, um,
2: I just mean for the impeachment yeah, it itself. That's yeah,
1: it. yeah. The drama still continues. though. And look, the Re- Republican Party, they got to figure out what they're going to do. They've got to either clean yep. up, they've got to either part company w- with Trump and somehow not lose all of those supporters, all 70, what, 4 million who voted yep. for him. Pretty hard balancing act for the uh, Republican Party. But yeah, to get this chapter closed quickly for them is probably key. Yeah, we will, it's, it's uh, going yeah. to
2: be a difficult juggling act for sure. And obviously the Republicans are going to take, it's not going to be days or weeks or months. This is going to take years for them to figure out whether they want to go back to the small C conservative model that Ronald Reagan, Barry Goldwater and others followed, or the Bush family, if you'd like, versus following the, adher- the, adherences of, or the adherence of Donald Trump or Trumpism, which isn't a real mm-hmm. philosophy, but basically it's just his mindset and whatever ideas he had. The Republican Party has to make a clear decision which road they want to follow. The easier path and the more logical path is to go back to the way it was before, but keep elements of Trump or Trumpism alongside them. In other words, you know, maintaining the strong relationship that Donald Trump built with the working class that the Republicans have lost over the decades, African-American votes, Hispanic votes, etc., and keeping that all part of the family rather than going to the other side walking with Trump, hoping that maybe he comes back in four years time to run again, or someone that he supports will run in his place. There's an enormous risk there. And I think that, you know, the last vote that we saw, the 2020 presidential election, shows that the, the better route to success and the more successful route to the success is to go back to the small C conservative model. And I hope they do. Stay
1: tuned. So do I. All right, Michael, uh, I'll let you do the watching, and then I'll tap into you for information on it. Appreciate your time breaking it down.
2: You betcha. Speak to you later next week.
1: That is Michael Tobe joining us. I just want it over because it's interrupting my soap schedule. I have one pleasure in life right now, and that is the bold and beautiful. It's not asking a lot, okay? And it is now off the air. Boy, just get it done, guys. Alex Pearson with you here. Stay with us on Global News Radio. You, of course, can join us live Monday through Friday, 6.30 sharp here. Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.
0: Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine Podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective.